Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that wonders if actually everything that's going on in British politics right now is just a clever safety measure as there's no way terrorists would attack the UK at the moment as any efforts they'd made would just look like they're trying to fix things. This is episode 158, I'm Tiernan Yeb, and as Prime Minister and mashed potato sculpture of a shipwreck, Boris Johnson has had his prorogation deemed unlawful, is accused of misusing public funds and now also sexual harassment, I'm starting to wonder if he keeps promising 20,000 more police officers because he knew how many would be needed just to deal with his misdemeanours. It's depressing that the only thing surprising about a journalist revealing that Boris Johnson groped both her and another woman without consent some years ago is that it's vague evidence that he can actually multitask. Johnson, of course, denies that this happened, but really, who would you trust here? A woman who claims she was harassed by the Prime Minister or a man whose lies usually only just fit on a bus and get told to the Queen? Chancellor and head of the Mekon, Sajid Javid, stated that the Prime Minister does not have a woman problem. But I wouldn't put it past him to get a note saying that he does, just so he can skip Parliament, even though we all knew it was really about Brexit. It's very clear that Johnson treats women much like he treats everything, as though there's no consequence to his actions, and it's other people's fault if there is. Shouting at his girlfriend so loudly that the neighbours call the police, well, it's their fault for listening. Saying humbug in response to the concerns at the memory of what happened to murdered MP Joe Cox and the increase in death threats to especially female MPs? Well, Johnson is sorry for the misunderstanding, which is his way of saying, I'm sorry you don't like me being a callous arsehole, but maybe you should sort that out. It wasn't a misunderstanding that Johnson dismissed important concerns by shouting humbug like an Ebenezer Scrooge, who'd probably tell the ghost of Jacob Marley that he wasn't being optimistic enough. In the same way, it's not a misunderstanding that he said the best way to honour Joe Cox was to get on with Brexit, which is the outcome that her killer wanted. It's like honouring the victims of Waco by building a 150-foot gold statue of David Koresh with a plaque that said, he totally duped those ninnies, total ledge. It's not a misunderstanding that Johnson uses words like surrender and betrayal about Brexit to fire up anger and encourage his supporters that it's some sort of war, which if it was, Johnson would assume he could send everyone else into it while trying to make his way round all of their lonely wives. Boris has always been particular on the language he uses, which is why it's often highfalutin and sounds like a fox is being violently sick after having eaten a dictionary. Last week, for example, Johnson spent some time comparing Brexit to the Greek myth of Prometheus, which works, but only because most of us just remembered the Ridley Scott film that we all thought was going to be great, but was then full of gaping plot holes, impossible ideas, cost a lot of money and largely disappointed everyone. It's not a misunderstanding that the Prime Minister has been referred to police, because it looks like he gave Jennifer Curie, a model and tech entrepreneur he was having an affair with, potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds of public funds for her business that wasn't even based in the UK. Johnson has said these stories are politically motivated, which must be confusing for him as he's only ever driven by getting his end away or earning more money. To be fair, they probably are politically motivated stories, but only in that he's at number 10, and it's really handy if we all know that he might spend most of Britain's resources on any woman that doesn't tell him to fuck off. It's not a misunderstanding that former Chancellor and Mr Men's Mr Rush, if he had no reason to live anymore, Philip Hammond, a man who doesn't believe in poverty because he hasn't seen it out of the tinted windows of his chauffeur-driven car or in any of the members-only bars he attends. Hammond's suggesting that Johnson only wants a no-deal Brexit as he's backed by disaster capitalists who'll earn a ton if everything goes tits up. 
Yes, Philip Hammond said that. Proof that Boris Johnson is the ISIS of politicians in that he's so bad you start to see heroes in those that you once hated just because they'll call him out. The Prime Minister has had several five-figure donations from hedge fund managers who've all bet on a no-deal crash-out, which if it happened would earn them millions in payouts overnight. Well, more fool them as in a no-deal that'll only be enough money to buy one loaf of bread anyway and will probably only really be effective if they draw it all out in notes to make a stab-proof suit so it's safe to roam the streets during all the riots. There have been two rather large misunderstandings over the last week, but both have been from Johnson and the Cabinet. Both of these have happened at the Conservative Party conference, which is currently sort of creaking along, despite the government losing a vote for a parliamentary recess during it. You can't unlawfully prorogue Parliament, claim you respect the Supreme Court's decision but disagree with it, making you sound like everyone who's ever pleaded not guilty than been found massively guilty, and then ask for a few more days off so you know you can gather round all your pals for a festival of the unenlightened. The boy who cried wolf knew that after he'd been caught out, it wouldn't have been right to ask the villagers for his own pet wolf that he actually needed for the big wolf race he'd probably ruined. And he was a child. Instead, if anything, it sounds like it could be the first ever almost appealing Conservative conference, what with many of the MPs having to be absent and it mostly raining outside. Then you realise that it's actually still full of people like International Trade Secretary and vacant gumball machine Liz Truss, who spouted that Britain will be on the side of the competitive freedom fighters, not the protectionist. What the fuck is a competitive freedom fighter? You set them free. No, you do it. No, you! Meanwhile, party chairman and the person who they have to write warning contains nuts on packets of peanuts for, James Cleverly, stated twice that it was the Conservatives that founded the NHS, which they definitely didn't. The only explanation is that he thinks it counts as discovering the NHS when they finally inquired what all those big buildings are that their driver takes them past when on their way to private clinics. There was a panel featuring Chancellor of the Duchy and Slitheen Tribute Act Michael Gove, Leader of the House and Only Man Whose Marriage Free passes for the Woman in Black, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and Brexit Secretary and... No, I've stopped looking at his picture so it is impossible to remember his face, Stephen Barclay. The only benefit of having all three on one panel was that you could avoid them all at once by being absolutely anywhere else. Seated in a row like a descent into a gruesome hall of mirrors, they spouted such dregs as Gove saying Parliament was paralysed, meaning that his government probably think it's fit for work. He insisted Boris is brave, determined and he delivers, though Gove didn't say what it was that he delivers and no one wants the postman to arrive with unnecessarily large buckets of shit. Sajid Javid announced in his speech big plans to increase the living wage to £10.55 and cut the threshold for that to 21 instead of 25 years old while pledging money for youth services and announcing that the Conservatives are the real party of Labour. Which, to be fair, might be true if they just continue to steal the opposition's policies as their own and then water them down so they aren't as good. I'm not really sure how this plan will work, but maybe the aim is to appeal Labour voters who have a desperate love for shit-awful tribute bands. But no, those aren't the misunderstandings, even though they also are. The first big misunderstanding of the Conservative conference is the Prime Minister's announcement for the biggest hospital building programme in a generation, with plans to build 40 new hospitals. Except, actually, the funding only covers six new buildings or refurbs over the next five years, so I guess the other 35 are the hospitals that we imagine along the way. None of this will make up for the massive shortage in doctors and nurses in the NHS right now either, so will they just be six massive empty buildings? Or will Health Secretary and personification of pulling your trousers up too highly, Matt Hancock, make some sort of app so you can go in and treat yourself? The announcement should have said that they're going to patch up existing hospitals with not enough money that has come from seemingly nowhere, like asking a kid to wish up a sticky plaster for their broken leg. And the other misunderstanding, well, it's one that sums up everything Boris Johnson has ever done, as the Conservative slogan this year is simply, Get Brexit Done. Something that's impossible, unless they're asking for Boris to arrange to have it beaten up, which he does have precedent for. You can get a bit of it done, but after we leave, there's then decades of further trade deals and statutory law changes and more. So what's the slogan going to be then? Sorry, Brexit was a bit more complicated than we thought, so it'll be another few years and it's going to cost you. I mean, that's Boris right there, isn't it? Charging ahead with no thought of consequence, whether that be when dismissing the effects of violent language with humbug, getting away with sexually harassing colleagues with an unwanted bum hug, or just getting Brexit done like a thick thug. Then denying all of it by insisting it didn't happen, or as he said on Sunday, that actually he is a model of restraint. Like one he made out of old wine boxes, probably. Or maybe it's just all our fault for misunderstanding that you really shouldn't tell your kids that they can achieve anything. Frankly, it's such a shame that Johnson didn't spend his life trying to do something like climb Everest, only to be hospitalised after turning up to base camp in just his pants with a packet of crisps because he thought he'd get away with it. 
A big question you might ask about all of this is, is this what supposed political mastermind, special advisor to the PM and Roger in American dad, Dominic Cummings, wanted? He said at a book launch last week that getting a Brexit deal was a walk in the park compared to the EU referendum, which doesn't surprise me, as it's very likely a walk in the park for Cummings involves him losing everything he started with and ends with him doing something unlawful. The very next day, Cummings denied ever saying such a thing, which if he genuinely doesn't remember what he's done from one day to the next, and Boris is repeating him verbatim, it really could explain a lot. All along, we've assumed the gaslighting is part of some incredible devious plan, but actually it's all Hanlon's law and we're really governed by idiots. Nothing proves this more than Transport Secretary and emoji for snivelling Brad Shapps, whose speech on the collapse of Thomas Cook was largely plagiarised from a speech by his predecessor and melted battery Chris Grayling, who is extremely skilled at being shit at everything. Grant Shapps there, the idiot who's so stupid, he copies homework off an idiot. The Transport Secretary has, in line with everyone else in the Conservatives who hasn't got a clue or any memory about anything they've ever done, said that he wasn't aware he'd copied Grayling's speech. But then I suppose he could absolve himself of responsibility by just saying that Michael Green did it. In other news, the Labour Party at their conference voted overwhelmingly to back the Green New Deal, a plan to decarbonise the UK through a radical policy package to increase social and economic justice, with a key motion aiming for net zero carbon emissions by 2030, a whole 20 years earlier than the Conservative pledge. It's a really important stance, but I'm concerned that if Labour made it into government, they'd break the pledge just by immediately wasting so much energy fighting themselves. During the Brexit party conference, leader and the glued-together bin contents from a morgue, Nigel Farage, was reported to the police after vowing to take a knife to the pen pushers. A needlessly violent comment, but also one that proves what an idiot Farage is, as the pen is mightier than the sword, so he'd likely get defeated. If he was really smart, he'd head over there with some tippex. Farage has said that he'll definitely stand as a candidate to be an MP at the next election, though that is probably because there's no way he'll get a seat. A new civility award has been launched by members of the House of Commons and Lords with the aim of addressing the current crisis of trust in politics and has the prize of £3,000 for the charity of choice for the winners who are MPs that will have shown the most courtesy and decency throughout their work. Thing is, at only £3,000, it's less a civility prize and more a scheme to highlight which MPs are the most rich and can't give a shit about laughing at others' death threats. To be truly effective, the prize should just be allowed to use for a foghorn during PMQs and then I reckon they'd get all on board. After the fracker last week in the House of Commons, the Westminster parties have now agreed to try and use moderate language, which I think doesn't seem all that fair to politicians on the far right and left. And lastly, independent MP and visual textbook guide to weathering, Rory Stewart, is setting up a new centrist party because, you know, people are still too embarrassed to directly join the Lib Dems. Stewart says they'll be inspired by the French En March party, so I can only hope he'll call them Jog On. And, just breaking news, the UK have proposed a string of customs clearance centres on both sides of the Irish border, which is part of their plan to replace the backstop. These centres would be located 5 to 10 miles back from the border, so essentially what they've said is, we don't want a physical border, how about we just have a physical border, but one that's really, really spaced out over several miles. And it won't be at the border because it'll be slightly far away from the border, but it's essentially still a border in everything but name. But if you stand maybe behind a tree you'll only see half of it so it doesn't count greetings pod crew how are you all faring this week uh, i am nearly considering putting the heating on that's where i am in my life i mean look it's october now outside looks grayer than philip hammond's complexion it's raining in the pathetic sort of way that won't soak you immediately but will just keep persevering and wearing you down till you just feel uncomfortable which i'm sure is one of the prime minister's tactics plus it's getting all dark and leaving to go anywhere feels like an effort which again makes me wonder if there's any less than good situation that doesn't just feel like a metaphor for current politics. Um, I haven't put the eating on because I have a jumper, so take that, energy companies. Yeah, I've thought it's your evil plans. It's also because it's not that cold. Uh, it just looks like it should be, which might be the effects of global warming going on, or maybe the weather just hasn't put the effort into its appearance today. Um, I regularly feel better than I look now, so I can totally sympathise. I once got told by someone that I look like someone who should have a nut allergy, and to this day, still don't really know what that meant. Um, Did you watch Westminster last week? The viewing figures for the Parliament Channel were so high that I'm sure they're going to commission another series. Um, It was gripping, but also awful, but also gripping. Um, I wasn't sure whether to release that extra episode uh, where Emma McClure kindly explained the Supreme Court's decision, Um, but I'm glad I did, as most of you listened to it, even though the jokes were rubbish and all my chat became redundant about four hours later. But yeah, I mean, that debate in Parliament that followed that got all heated and really nasty was really very grim, wasn't it? It sort of felt odd knowing that I would have totally loved it 
if it had been commissioned by HBO. But as a taste of reality, hearing Bojo repeat, the only way to do that is to Brexit while dismissing all concerns of safety was really unnerving. At the same time, him constantly goading Labour to go for a no-confidence vote felt very much like a wounded soldier begging the enemy to end the suffering. Which is probably also a necessary language, isn't it? And that's when I realised I should probably tone it down, and then that's when I realised that this is a comedy podcast and it's a bit different, and also that I have in no way suggested that fears of an MP dying is humbug, and no one is actually hoping I fix anything, so morally I think I'm still on top. Just... It's amazing that we now have a Prime Minister he can use as a morality barometer, but where he's at the bottom of the scale rather than the top. I mean, it's not as if any of the last however many Prime Ministers have been anywhere near the top, but holy shit, Johnson feels like the weighted underplate to stop the barometer falling over. Thank you uh, for coming back to this show. Did you find the bonus app useful? Um, I'm hoping I won't have to do too many, but hey, let's see what happens. Who the fuck knows? Thank you to whoever of you gave the podcast of five stars on iTunes last week. The show is now just 41 away from 200 reviews. So if there are 41 of you that fancy helping out, please, please do. And if one of you is Grant Shapps, then please use your 17 different identities to give it a boost. Um, if you fancy donating to this show, which um, this week I've realised I'm drinking too much coffee uh, and I'm basically spending the mornings flying, I should probably have a breather. So any donations will go towards um, tea, which isn't any better, but much like the weather, I've tricked my brain into thinking it is uh, due to appearances. So uh, please buy me a single or even monthly recurring tea at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, uh, by which I mean the tea wouldn't be recurring because that would make it really awful and probably quite acidic. Um, or you can do the same at patreon.com forward such bro. And huge thank you to all of you who kindly tweeted about the show last week. It was very much appreciated. I am desperately trying to find ways to get this show included on things like uh, the podcast live politics weekend that's happening next weekend and we're not included on. Um, or even the Apple Podcasts recommended politics podcast, which again, Parpol Bro is absolutely nowhere in sight. But the best way appears to be um, either going to Apple and sort of holding them all hostage, which I wouldn't do. I don't even know where the office is. Um, or getting even more people to listen in to my drivel about drizzle and so with your help that is very much appreciated um very teeny admin this week admini if you like um firstly the kids politics show i do with tat and spiller at simple politics now has its own nearly finished website at politics for kids for not the number uk should you wish to see when we're near you next um do check that out plus the not for kids live podcast gig at two north down now has a lineup which includes comedians alistair barry don biswas who just got best joke at the labor conference gigs i believe um sadia asmat alex keely and speakers, political journalist Jennifer McKiernan and the aforementioned Tatton Spiller who will answer all your impending Brexit-based questions as best as they can. Um, and that's on October the 29th at 2 North Down in King's Cross and you can get tickets at number2northdown.com so please do that. Um, again, fuck knows what will happen by then. Who knows what will be going on um, and if nothing else, uh, there is a bar. Please come. On this week's show, I thought it was time to get someone who could sort of answer what on earth is going on, sort of, a bit. And so I spoke to the excellent James Miller, who is a Westminster journalist for a variety of places and hosts the UK in a Changing Europe podcast. Also, there's a Idiot's Guide to Disaster Capitalism, or as some of you might know it, Capitalism. Arf, you see what I did there? <laughs> the jokes. I posted an Instagram pic the other day of me wearing a Zack Sabre Jr. t-shirt. He's a wrestler type. And it says, I fight with my brain and an underlying hatred of the British Conservative Party. And somebody commented, this is why your politics shows are not worthy. All the underlying bias. I was meant to say that as a compliment, right? Right? Anyway, get buying your live show tickets and listen to this noise. British politics seems all a bit chaotic right now, which is a sentence that, if you like, you can use for every week from now since about 2015. From a very basic level, we have a Prime Minister who's only setting an example if the example is exactly not what to do if you wish to appear as even a moderately functioning human. His government are all blindly backing every fuck-up he makes, while simultaneously promising to fund all the things they stopped funding, but with money that isn't actually there, despite previously criticising the opposition for pledging exactly the same thing just months before. The opposition seem hell-bent on scoring own goals, the Lib Dems have gone full Game of Thrones and want to win everything, the people who promised sovereignty now don't want it, the people who wanted an election don't want it just yet, everyone's getting death threats, and all the while Brexit is heading towards us like a really badly CGI'd comet that no one can quite work out what it's meant to look like. Is this normal? Is this a product of our times? And do things only look like this because we can watch it on Parliament TV? 
Sometimes I wonder if politicians in the 70s acted exactly like this, but we didn't see it on telly and online 24-7, so we had absolutely no clue. I mean, was Harold Wilson calling the opposition chickens and traitors, but everyone was just using their tweeting hand to hold their cigarettes and um, flared trousers and sideburns? Hmm? To be honest, I have absolutely no idea. And I thought this week it'd be really nice to get someone who might be able to say if this is all as batshit as it seems, or if actually Parliament is always a pile of stupid. So I spoke to political journalist James Miller to get some views on what's going on right now. James is currently the Westminster Pundit for Press and Journal, among other publications, and he also co-hosts the UK in a Changing Europe podcast. I asked him all about whether or not it should be like this and just what might happen next if anyone at all has the slightest of clues. No, I have no idea how long this chat will remain topical for either, but my goodness, James had a good go. Here he is. Enjoy. So, James, you've been a political journalist for uh, some time now, um, which which hopefully gives you some sort of grounding or overview of what's going on now. Are we are we seeing completely unprecedented times in in terms of absolute chaos in British politics and language used, or is it? Do, do people say that every five years? Is this just uh, another kind of cycle of things going crazy in in Westminster? No, this is different. This is uh, worse, undoubtedly worse. I mean, I, I sort of got into doing uh, political reporting because I kind of believed in politics, which it kind of made me slightly odd sometimes in the lobby and that some of them just regard it as a, <laughs> a big game and it's all very cynical and all, you know, that thing of why is this lying bastard lying to me sort of thing. And I sort of kind of believe in it. And, you know, I've met lots of MPs and politicians of all parties and most of them are really nice. And I've always said, you know, don't go down the lazy route of saying they're all liars and, you know, they just want to have too much holiday and all this sort of stuff. And I can't defend them anymore. You know, and that's, in some ways, that's really sad. But, you know, um, lots of them are lying. You know, they are, <laughs> we are, there are, are, it's not facts. There are entirely sensible projections we can make about Brexit, you know, particularly around the economy and no deal Brexit that obviously um, we're talking about a lot at the moment. And I heard the, the Chancellor, I was about to say the Shadow Chancellor, but no, the actual Chancellor on the radio this morning, just saying mad things, you know, just outrageous stuff um, that, you know, is barely true. You know, there will be some disruption from no deal. Well, there'll be huge disruption. And, you know, OK, it's OK to say, well, I don't really care if people get ill or, you know, lose their jobs or, or whatever, uh, or, you know, to say, He's the chancellor. He could say, I'm going to spend loads of money and buy lots of drugs and make lots of jobs and it'll be fine. That's fine to say that as well. But to just sort of deny the scale of the disruption is, you know, it's wicked, really. It's it's really odd, isn't it? It just doesn't seem to be any accountability at all. As you say, sort of preferring to lie rather than accept you know, that, that these things will happen or, or even there's there's no apologies and there's no responsibility. It just seems to be, oh, well, I'll just tell you it's not happening. Yeah, I mean, the nature of politics is, you know, you don't agree. That's the whole point of it is you have two sides who have different views and they argue it out and, and you know, we get to decide and, and you come to a sort of agreed position broadly. Um, it's not about finding the truth or anything. Um, but on this stuff, uh, like you say, they're just denying it. Is, is what drives me nuts. I mean, you know, we've had this, Boris Johnson gives his big interview to the Telegraph and says, I'm going to build 40 hospitals. Um, and they put it on the front page. I mean, that's just ridiculous. He might as well have said, I'm going to, you know, build a unicorn out of magic gold. I mean, you know, it's just not, <laughs> all right, maybe you are going to build 40 hospitals. I mean, he's not. <laughs> this is the man who has history when it comes to, you know, uh, telling big fibs about the NHS. Um, but, you know, maybe he's going to build 40 hospitals. Who's going to work in these hospitals? I mean, you, essentially what he, he may have said yesterday is, I'm going to build 40 buildings that are going to sit empty. No, that's a great story because the story is the prime minister's full of shit, basically. But of course, that's not how it's reported. It's reported as if, you know, there's some sort of, ooh, you know, you have to have balance or something. I mean, there's no balance in the Telegraph, let's face it. But I mean, this is what I, I sort of, this is why it's sad that I can't really understand what's going on because it's so foreign to my way of thinking about politics and about journalism. Is, is, is there something, I mean, it's become so vitriolic, but it, it feels like it's particularly nasty now and the language used has been particularly nasty. And last week we had the Johnson saying humbug to, to you know, people talking about Joe Cox's death. I mean, does it 
does that feel different as well? Or, or is that also, again, you know, sometimes I worry that actually this is what's always happened and I've just got no memory of 20 years ago when MPs were spouting off at each other like this. No, I mean, it's definitely, it, it's definitely coarsened, as they say. And, you know, to some extent, so what? You know, we want the politicians who are like us and we sit in the pub and swear about people. So, you know, what's wrong with that? But you, I think it's OK. I mean, that's nonsense, by the way. That thing of we want a representative parliament, I've always said it's absolute rubbish because if you want a representative parliament, you want idiots and criminals and murderers in there. We don't. What we want is a parliament that represents the best of us. Um, and on that basis, we probably should be able to have an argument without resorting to insult and um, unnecessarily coarse language. I mean, I would never rule. You know, I'm a journalist. Swearing, I, I'm all for swearing. But, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, there's a time and a place for it, you know. Um, as I keep telling my children, you, know, you, you can swear, but you have to get to a certain age when, you know, it's like smoking or drinking. It's when you know how to do it properly. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's definitely coarsened. Part of the problem, I think, and it pains me to say it, and there's no doubt that Johnson was absolutely wrong to say that thing about humbug, but um, both sides are guilty. Um, there's a lot of uh, Remainers who sort of think they are whiter than white and it's all the Brexiteers who are the baddies um, and vice versa. Um, but, you know, it's a cliche. I'm a journalist. We use cliches. You know, it takes two to tango. It, both sides are guilty of uh, thinking they are the good guys and they're above all this and they don't do it and thinking the other side are to blame, um, whereas in fact it is. Uh, unfortunately, it's a more general problem. Is that is that, uh, and I, I don't mean to uh, attack you here, James, in any way, but is that also to do with the way it's represented kind of in press? You know, because all these things generate big headlines and they're big stories and calling someone a traitor or whatever is, is a big front page thing. Is that has, has, has that had a part to do with it? Do you think sort of MPs play up to that? Yeah, um, I do think it's interesting. Obviously, we're going to have a new speaker uh within uh well not quite a month a little bit more than a month um and you sort of look at the, the the race to be speaker and you think well this is this didn't happen before the tv cameras were in the commons you know it, it's become a different sort of role and it's the same with the media and the way they report this it's the influence of the internet now you get uh there's a reason why you know, particularly a telegraph and the mail will tell you that the you know the internet the social media is a cesspit and somehow they're not which is quite clearly cobblers it's because they're rivals um but it is it's interesting the influence of the internet on politics has sort of happened in ways that perhaps we didn't expect i wrote a column about this last week in terms of how it's affected party memberships and therefore party management but it's also impacted on how politics is done because people are more um uh, what's the word <laughs> on the internet they are less inhibited shall we say uh on social media or some people are um and that undoubtedly feeds through to you know the newspapers have to compete with social media uh to some extent so they they have to sort of ape it to some to some extent and it's not i'm not sure it's entirely the fault of social media they you know, you know social media has made people uh more outrageous um, it, it's you know it's a big complex problem and <laughs> it's quite a boring one to sit and discuss really. But um, yeah, absolutely. Your point broadly, I, I agree with at the end of all that is that yes, newspapers are a part of it, um, but it's also partly to do with the internet and its influence. And I think it's interesting how you know the internet's been around properly for say twenty years now, and we're be really beginning to see how it's influencing politics and you know therefore wider life. And you know that's all mixed up with why we had a referendum and the result and the, 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 um, the you know, the, what's happened since the referendum and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it's all, all sort of tied up together. It's all really complicated, basically. And yet we're told it's really simple. You know, it's, it's yes, no, leave, remain or whatever. Is is that also because part of the feeling I get from the social media things? I think it's sort of hyped things up in one in one way, but then in the other way, it's made everyone really cynical and not trust anything because they believe everything is hyped up. Um, and and it's sort of one of the, the things I look at. You know, the, the things that Boris Johnson has been getting away with in the past week. He's been ruled unlawful from prorogation. He's said the humbug thing. There's been the allegations of his relationship with with uh, you know our, uh, Jennifer Curie and and then the groping allegation, but. 
can he get away with anything now because his supporters just think, oh, well, that's media bias and, you know, his detractors think it's all true. You know, is this line so blurred now that, that we have a prime minister that can do whatever they like? Uh, it certainly looks like it. I mean, that's the worry. I mean, you know, this whole, whole thing of Boris for a start, you know, I have noticed much more people refer to him as Johnson since he became prime minister. But it's like, well, do you know what? We need to not give him some sort of different treatment. And yet, you know, he is Boris. He is this character. And, and that was baked in when MPs supported him and when the Tory membership supported him. They knew they were getting um, baggage, shall we say. Uh, and yet, yeah, I mean, it's, perhaps it's still been surprising how awful the rumours are. And, you know, at the moment, they are all still rumours. But the man has a, a pattern of behaviour um, which undoubtedly is bad. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, one of my columns... Last week, the, the sub-editors changed, I described him as a cheater, and they changed it to chancer, which, you know, chancer is a great Scottish word, so I was quite happy with that. But um, but cheater, he's still a cheater. This is true. I mean, you can call him a liar, and it's true. You know, we have the evidence that he has lied over his career. We know he's cheated on his wife or, or, or you know, in however, uh, you know, cheated in lots of ways, basically. You suggest he cheated in the referendum. Certainly the Leave campaign were found guilty of uh, some infringements. You know, you can say this stuff about him and it's, you know, you, you won't get sued. I don't think that's true of any previous prime minister. Um, but yeah, I mean, the reason you can get away with anything to some extent is that certainly the Tories and to some extent, according to the, the polling, the public at large, um, see him as a winner. And again, that's slightly sad that that overrules everything else. Um, you know, I wrote, again, a Basically, just go and read my columns from the Press and Journal. But um, I wrote a column earlier in the I wrote a column earlier in the year um, about you know the, the the column he wrote about um, Muslim women uh, being like uh, pillar boxes and, and bank robbers if they wear um, the uh, burqa. Now, a, a Tory, a sensible Tory, I would say, who was backing him for the leadership, sort of said, "Yeah, I was talking to him about it." And he said, "Yeah, that that's bad," but there's not many people wear burqas in my constituency. Now, um, that's true. He's got a rural Scottish constituency. Uh, and the fact is there's very few women wearing burqas there. But uh, so, you know, it, to him, that wasn't going to affect his chances of getting reelected. But the whole point of democracy, one of the fundamental tenets of democracy is you defend minorities, you defend minority rights. Now, you can be a, a, a maverick MP who has less interest in minority rights, who, who represents a very um, homogenous seat and isn't interested in all that sort of sort of stuff if they want. But if you're the prime minister and if you're the government, then absolutely your job is to defend minority rights, not to pick on minorities. Um, and the fact that, like I say, a sort of sensible Tory was sitting there willing to overlook that huge problem with, you know, uh, the fundamentals of democracy, just because they think, well, I'm going to win uh, if Boris is a leader. It, it's 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 terrifying, really, is what it is, actually. Sorry, it's not very funny. <laughs> the, the, end of, the end of democracy isn't going to be particularly hilarious, it turns out. Well, it's, one of the things I've been really sort of uh, thrown by is, is, is like this conference season. Normally you come away with sort of seeing what the parties are planning for the future. And uh, I could say maybe like Labour, there's a lot of policies of Labour's I heard, but only after the Brexit conversation that, that Labour were deciding on died down. The Lib Dems, I've... Somebody was asking me what their policies are the other day, and I only I only know it's to remain. Uh, I don't know anything else. And, and the Tories, similarly, we've had hospitals that aren't actually going to be there, and the rest is Brexit. <laughs> and, you know, are we seeing like kind of irreversible changes to, to the political parties because the, the, everything now is just such, it's just one issue. Yeah, it's so uncertain. I mean, that's the thing. It's essentially what all the parties are promising is chaos in, in some way, you know, <laughs> different sorts of chaos, essentially. Um, and I think that's part of it is um, how can you make policies based on a future which is so unclear? You know, if you were making policies in the 1950s or 60s pretty obvious what was going to happen you know everything was pretty well settled um that you could make sensible sort of predictions um now you know we don't know what's going to happen in one month's time 
So how can you possibly draw up uh, realistic policies on that basis? Um, if we do leave without a deal, and the experts I speak to think that's increasingly likely, despite the fact those same experts have drawn up report after report showing that it's quite a bad idea, we don't know what's going to happen in the case of no deal. We can make very good projections um, and you know you can then sort of try and mitigate against what we think is going to happen but a lot of it and a lot of the reason we can't know what's going to happen is because it comes down to those wonderful things uh human beings we don't know how people are going to react um you know are they all going to go out and panic by or are people just going to sort of shrug their shoulders and say you know keep calm and carry on and we have absolutely no idea. Um, so you can do all the economic projections, you can do all sorts of sensible work, but there is this massive bit of uncertainty. Uh, and that big uncertainty is, you know, 70 million people who actually are going to vote and, and react. Um, it's sort of fascinating, but again, sort of terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I find it really terrifying. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a type one diabetic, and I know from my my mm. diabetic nurse has told me that the insulin I need it has been stockpiled. While other, but she said that others haven't, so I'm lucky. But then, what I need to kind of administer the insulin might not have been stockpiled, so I might have to go back to old school injections. Or like, so it's those. But when it comes to those sort of things, it's it's really unbelievable that that's being considered as a you know uh, from a very selfish point of view, just people that need medicine like myself you think it's mad that that's a a reasonable outlet it's not selfish i mean this is the, it, you know it's selfish it sort of seems selfish to you but i don't want you to die Tiana. thanks, James, um, thanks. <laughs> i appreciate that <laughs> i don't want my i mean i suppose to some extent that's selfish all right i don't want my french sister-in-law to be deported you know or have to leave the country um you know we all know people who are going to be affected by this we all know even those who are sitting in their leafy constituencies going nah, it'd be fine because you know i've got a big house and loads of money you you still know people that are going to be affected well you know you might be affected because me and my poor friends are going to riot and come through your house at some point but everyone is going to be um affected it's, it's not it, i don't know it's, an, it's a really interesting point that actually the idea that sort of it's selfish to feel like that when actually it's okay to say I'm part of a community, you know, we're part of something bigger. Uh, and if something happens to one of us, then it's bad for all of us. Um, I think that's kind of, I don't know, maybe that's totally wishy-washy and uh, liberal and, you know, with a small L and, and uh, optimistic or something, but is that not an okay thing to think? <laughs> it doesn't seem to be, you know, I think the government's going ahead going, well, some people are going to get, there's going to be some disruption. Some people are going to die and lose their jobs, but you know, whatever. Most of us will be all right. No, we're all we all suffer if one person suffers. I don't know. That's terribly old-fashioned, isn't it? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with James in a minute. But first... Can you imagine the very idea of profiteering off things going to shit and everyone having a terrible time? 
No, I'm not just talking about car insurance or home insurance or travel insurance or life insurance. Okay, they're all awful businesses that are entirely based on earning money because you've had a really awful shit time or died, which is the worst of shit times. But at least with insurance companies, you get to have that fun chat on the phone with someone where they tell you they'll only replace your very necessary laptop with another laptop if you pay them the full price of a laptop, otherwise you're getting a Fisher-Price calculator. Disaster capitalists are, if you can believe it, even worse than that. First described as such by author and social activist Naomi Klein, aka the smaller version of Naomi Gross, in her book The Shock Doctrine in 2007. And she said disaster capitalists were those who exploit national crises to profit from them or in order to push through controversial policies, much like, for example, the global financial crash allowed the Conservatives to push through austerity while dropping corporation tax. Turns out the actual phrase is misery loves big companies. Mm-hmm. This week, however, former Chancellor Philip Hammond said that Boris Johnson is only pushing for a no deal because he's backed by disaster capitalists who will profiteer from the country and despite the thousands of times Hammond has been wrong about things, on this he's, now don't fall over in shock, sort of right. I know, I know, it's really weird, isn't it? It makes me feel a bit sick as well. Between May the 10th and July the 23rd, Johnson received just under £700,000 in financial donations according to the Electoral Commission and Register of Financial Interests, and over £400,000 of that was from hedge fund managers and city traders. Unbelievably, the Conservatives' own 1922 committee placed a cap on campaign spending, but Boris received a whole load of it before he announced his leadership bid and another chunk too late for it to count as he'd already been declared winner. One of the people who donated is a man called Crispin Odie, who is a multi-millionaire hedge fund manager, or translated, has done nothing useful for society ever and looks a lot like if someone badly taxidermied Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. He and his wife have been named the posh and becks of the city, but I'm guessing that's mainly because Beckham is known for being a big right winger and based on her singing, posh was also skilled in making money from people's misery. Odie has already profiteered off Brexit by speculating that the markets would fall if leave won, netting him £220 million. He then also took a short position on the pound, which sounds like he just made himself really low and lay next to some coins, but actually it just means that he'd bet that it would fuck up. And thanks to our government and EU deals being voted against, it did. Odie and many financial commentators argue that this is just what you do when you're a hedge fund manager as you predict the rise and fall of money and companies because isn't it fun having all that dosh to play with while people's lives are destroyed and yes, really as a business it doesn't make any sense especially when you know that so much of that money doesn't even actually exist in real life and if someone accidentally wiped out a ton of servers it'd all just go. But the reality of this very weird reality aside, Odie has also taken short positions out on a ton of things, is known for doing exactly that, and he also occasionally puts money on certain companies doing well, such as Tesco's, because, you know, every little helps. He says claims that he has any motivation towards causing a no-deal are rubbish, and he has no political investment and is simply an observer. Okay, but that doesn't stop him having the moral fibre content of white bread, though. But if Odie and other hedge fund managers aren't at all motivated towards a no-deal, why are there currently £4.6 billion of short deals made on a no-deal possibility by people or companies who've directly financed the Prime Minister, including Odie, and also donated to vote leave, and also took out short positions on the result of the referendum being leave? It could well be that people who do that sort of thing are fans of the Conservatives, because, well, I mean, money, betting on other people having an awful time, basing your entire life on toying with lives because you can afford to, it's sort of the most basic of prerequisites to be a Tory member, isn't it? But even if they just so happen to be profiteering on Brexit, there are many others that will definitely relish a brutal exit. From the US government, who looks set to snap up various deals and public services, possibly even the NHS, to the Indian government, who drew up a joint trade review with Britain looking at, post-Brexit, reducing standards to do with pesticides in foods. And what if a toe was a vampire, Ian Duncan Smith has touted several times that post-Brexit the carbon floor price should be removed, which would allow coal burning to be returned to the country, and Johnson has previously mentioned scrapping all the green standards for electrical goods. A no deal means no trade regulations, means a whole ton of people and businesses will do very well out of us getting lamps that explode, food that tastes of dead bees and a general air of smog. So to sum up, is Johnson specifically driven by people who want him to no deal because they'll earn nearly £8 billion in gains if we do? I can't say for sure, but I mean, judging by everything else we know about him, it really would seem out of character if that had nothing to do with it. Will many profit out of the situation anyway? Yes, very much so. Is Hammond right to call it out when he was an apologist for the banks who crashed the globe in 2008? Well, no, he's still a millionaire shitwreck too. Wouldn't it be nice if this entire stupid system of making money stopped because ultimately it doesn't really help anyone? Yes, definitely. And have you written all this on your Fisher-Price calculator? Yes, yes I have. And you know what? I'm very proud of myself too.
And now, back to James. Well, no, but it's but it's, it's part of the thing. It's part of what I'm finding quite sort of weird at the moment. Is that just you know we're we're only hearing extreme views about everything. It's either right we crash out and it doesn't matter if people suffer because we just at least we've won, or or we remain and it doesn't matter if half the country doesn't get listened to. You know, there's and and I sort of that one of the things I really like about your podcast uh, on the UK and changing Europe. You, you you speak to you speak to some quite extreme people as well as some some sensible people and some experts. And but you know. Is, is is it just sometimes I wonder, is it just an act? Do you ever sense any kind of willingness that there might be a, an agreement on a middle ground or is everyone so die hard on this, this, you know, just winning, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't see that desire to find a middle ground, but then a lot of people uh, have a lot to gain by not finding that middle ground. That's part of the problem or a lot to lose if they find that middle ground i mean i i've described it and you know i'm not claiming to be any sort of comedian or or anything but i genuinely as a sort of uh accurate representation because i chaired an event for uk and changing europe and um there was a a number of the the leading levers were on it um claire fox the brexit mep was on the panel um her name lucy harris used to be levers for london she's now a brexit party mep uh gina miller was on the channel on the panel And, and I said, it's like looking at uh, a kitten and saying, isn't that kitten cute? And the other person says, that's not a kitten, that's a walrus. Because if we can all agree that it's a cat, you can say, look, I don't like kittens. I got scratched by one with a kid, so I don't find that cute at all. You know, I don't like that sort of kitten. It's a black cat and I prefer, well, you know, in the Brexit uh, debate, you know, I prefer the white one, perhaps. Uh, you know, I prefer British cats rather than Siamese cats or something like that. I don't know. But you can have that discussion. But if you can all agree that it's a cat, then you can then move on to having a discussion about it. But if you can't even agree what it is, how do you move forward? And, and that's what really worries me about all this. And to be fair, actually, what I've noticed is I genuinely think Jeremy Corbyn gets that um, and understands that division is perhaps going to be the biggest problem going forward because some of the things he said some of these i i get that his policy is whatever the hell it is whatever it is it seems ridiculous and whatever it is it's incredibly hard to sell on the doorstep if there's an election but i do get the feeling that he or his people or somebody there in the labor party or perhaps more than any other understands that the divisions are what are going to be the problem going forward you know once we leave i, I think we probably will leave at some point whether with a deal or without, um, we can then get on to things will change. You know, there will be a different discussion. Um, but those divisions and healing those divisions is, I think, going to be the big problem going forward. And I don't see many people terribly interested or even in recognizing the extent of those divisions, let alone trying to heal them. I mean, <laughs> what the Tories are doing, they're trying to cleave everything further apart, as far as I can see, which is, um, I suggest, is irresponsible. Yeah, it's hugely responsible. I mean, but it's very interesting as well that you say that Labour's policy, which is, I, I feel like they're communicating it very badly, but it does seem to be, well, we would like to appeal to everyone and bring everyone together and let the people decide. <laughs> and in, in a way, as you know, it, I'm sort of amazed that there aren't more parties going for a kind of unity strategy. I suppose the Greens are a bit, but it 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 doesn't even seem, I don't know, is, is that because it's so electorally dangerous and if it is like why there must be the whole group of like middle people out there that would quite like to just things to work out well yeah i mean we i did a podcast last week with two of the uk and changing europe wonks who were suggesting that yeah the lib dems policy of revoking article 50 actually to some extent they are um, vacating that middle ground by doing that um the middle ground has opened up for labor bizarrely but of course Labour are economically nowhere near the middle ground, and there's there's the issue. Um, it's why more and more people are saying, oh, if, if we could get rid of Jeremy Corbyn and get somebody a bit more uh, centrist or just a bit more or a bit less divisive to lead the Labour Party, um, you know, we could begin to think about cleaning up here. But um, I can't see that happening anytime soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a centre ground in politics. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, and that's where most people are, because most people don't really care about politics at the end of the day. Um, you know, uh, they're getting on with their lives. Um, and if you ask them about, you know, the issues of the day, they will 
broadly somewhere in the centre. I mean, fascinatingly, there's some talk about um, people's assemblies, citizens' assemblies and all this sort of stuff, uh, which are sort of coming into to the mix. Uh, the UK and Changing Europe did a citizens' assembly on Brexit um, well, ages ago now, but it was I think I think it was in Manchester and Leeds I think they did it. Um, but it was they said it was fascinating because you brought together Remainers and Leavers, and if you put them in a room to talk to each other and you know you sort of lead that discussion to some extent, but you know not in any any major way, just to stop them you know attacking each other or anything. Actually, by the end of the process, um, they'd all sort of coalesced around a sort of soft Brexit. You know, and they were happy with that, and they were willing to go out and advocate for that because they'd heard both sides of the argument, they understood the issues that need to be um, negotiated, and, and understood that actually a sort of soft Brexit works for everyone. Um, and I just wonder—I don't know. I, there's not time for citizens' assemblies now before before Brexit, but the citizens' assemblies thing is certainly something to keep an eye on. I think going forward, it might increasingly look like. Um, something we could try and build into politics more to try and solve these big issues rather than you know referendums which have been proved to be just <laughs> fucking stupid basically yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the last uh, nine years even all the way back to i think i always think of the av vote referendum and how I, I always remember a big poster that said this baby won't get its incubator care if you vote for an av vote and i was like how does that make that doesn't make any sense it's got nothing to do with it <laughs> and ever since then i feel like referendums have been a terrible terrible uh yeah, that was a missed opportunity, wasn't it? That would have been great if everybody had got really hit up about AV and we'd had massive division about that. If people had been like, no, I, I love the, the standard transferable vote. Um, and then we would have seen the division caused by referendums at that point. And all the other ones that have followed would have just been like, no, nah, we're not going to do referendums. That's a terrible idea. Um, but, you know, nobody could get that hit up about whatever. They, what was it? Yeah, AV, STV, oh, that takes me back to... Uh, higher modern studies, learning all the different forms of PR. Why did, why did we bother doing that? <laughs> don't even have PR in this country. You know, it's no, I don't. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a very strange, uh, very strange. I think it was the, the only thing Nick Clegg could come up with that, that, that the Tories would go for at the time. Um, I was going to ask, yeah, so I mean, by the time this is out, which uh, is, is day after we speak, there could well have been SNP will have tried a no confidence vote. Maybe I don't know what will have happened with the Conservative conference. Who knows what will have happened? Um, what do you see happening next? Do you have any like <laughs> ideas or predictions? I mean, it seems impossible to to have a clue at the moment. It is. I mean, you know, uh, the great thing of hanging around with all these experts that you get into in Europe is I get to ask them what's going to happen next. And then I generally just parrot whatever they say and make it <laughs> sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, Excellent. But, I mean, they've, they've no idea either. They, they do this thing. Um, I'm not going to slag it because they pay me, but they do this thing called the Brexit. I flag it on the podcast. They do this thing called the Brexit, pol- <laughs> uh, what's it, the Brexit Policy Panel. Uh, and they ask 100 experts uh, various questions each month, um, essentially asking them to sort of predict the future. Um, and we turn it into uh, Brexit family fortunes on the podcast and get people to try and anticipate what the what the hundred said. But they just they're, they're all over the place. You know, they said, you know, obviously in February they were asked, are we going to leave on March the 29th? And, you know, like 64 percent said yes. And obviously we didn't. Um, we recently asked them uh, who will win the forthcoming election. So there is going to be an election. Personally, I think it will probably be in the spring. But um, who's going to win it? Six of them said the Lib Dems. <laughs> We're trying to figure out who are these six experts who genuinely think the Lib Dems are going to win a majority. I mean, I think the Lib Dems are going to do well, but they're not going to win a majority. But, you know, maybe these are the six experts who have been studying Lib Dem electoral history and, and worked it all out. I don't know. Um I mean, what's going to happen? We're going to Brexit. I think we're going to, there's going to be a Brexit. I know that doesn't sound like a big prediction, but I think we probably will leave. Um, will we leave with a deal? Uh, it's hard to see. It's very hard to see how we get there before 31st of October. Um, I know this government keeps saying that they've got these plans and non-papers that they've been sharing with the EU and all that sort of stuff, but you just, I just can't see how the, the two positions can possibly meet because the things they're saying are, are so far apart. Um we should have 
if there's not a deal, then we should have a extension. You have to say that seems likely because we know there's a law forcing the government to ask for an extension. And the government say, we're leaving, come what may, we've got a, a funny, clever way of getting around that. Um, but the government are a government of shits and liars. So, you know, until they actually produce... <laughs> Until they actually produce some sort of evidence for that, you know, it's that thing of, yeah, I've got a girlfriend, she goes to another school, you wouldn't know her. Um, I'm simply not going to believe this, oh, we've got a way of getting around this law until somebody tells us what it is. Um, So you have to sort of deal with what's in front of you, which I suppose points to an extension. Do we have a GNU, a government of national unity, to, to do that extension? I mean, that would seem to make sense, but I can't see how Parliament can agree on an interim Prime Minister. Um, so that might be the key to it all. That, um, again, as I wrote in a column, the numbers are bad for Boris Johnson, but they're worse for everyone else because they can't agree. And, and Boris is actually in number 10, which is not a bad place to be. Um, so this is, you know, so that's not really very helpful, but... Uh, no, I can't really predict what's going to happen. I mean, like I say, on the basis of what we've got in front of us, there will be an extension, and then who knows? Um, my sort of pet theory is that, and based on nothing, but you know, lots of people are going around spreading theories based on nothing at the moment, uh, is that you do get a, a government of national unity somehow. I don't know who or how. Uh, it does the extension, gets a deal agreed by the 31st of January, puts that deal to the people that's a referendum in may uh and then we followed immediately by a general election in june but um that's you know that that could happen this is likely as anybody else's guess at the moment to be honest um but it's also quite unlikely <laughs> but then everybody else's guess is equally unlikely you know it's just uh it's just so uncertain i mean that's why it is um so different i mean everything is is just so odd <laughs> and yeah. and i guess with that theory boris might be dead in a ditch on november the first i don't know is that <laughs> according to his his views well yeah or lying in front of a, a, a jcb at heathrow like he said he would do yeah. that as well, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, can't likely. even keep those promises yeah but, yeah absolutely um, yeah you know i don't really like the dead in a ditch language to be honest it, it makes me feel a bit weird i mean that's that's one of the things I predict. I mean, I know that's Boris's language. You know, it's what he said. Um, that's one of the things I think I, I have predicted, unfortunately. I think I could predict with quite a lot of certainty is that, unfortunately, I think something bad will happen before the end of the year. And again, I know it's not funny, um, but I do feel that this is heading towards some sort of unpleasantness. And I hope it's not as bad as the Joe Cox murder, but I fear something like that is, you know, we're within touching distance of something horrible like that. Um, and that is, I say, it's not funny, but it is something we sort of need to talk about and say, hang on, this has got out of hand and we mustn't let it get that bad. But I, I genuinely worry it might. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it does. It does feel like a, a proper concern. It just feels like just one apology would uh, would really help. I, I always amazed that lots of MPs talk about British values all the time, and I always think the most British stereotype is that we say sorry all the time. <laughs> That's the most British thing that other countries think yeah. of. And I think if you want to uphold British values, just apologise just a little bit would be really uh, very British indeed. Apologise for. Apologise for stuff you haven't done. I mean, that's that's a yeah. British thing. Just go, sorry, you know, just if you, you walk past somebody in the street, go sorry, just for existing. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we talked briefly on the uh, the UK and Changing Europe podcast last week about, uh, or maybe actually I might have cut that bit. So anyway, go and listen to it anyway. But I might have cut this bit on. But um, uh, one of the experts said, you know, British politics is increasingly resembling Italian politics. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting point, and we'll do another podcast sometime discussing to what extent the politics either shapes or reflects the nation. Because if we're going to have Italian politics, does that mean we also get to be like Italy, uh, you know, and just generally be more relaxed and more healthier and have better food and everything is just better? Um, because I'm all for that. I can live with the Italian politics if we're going to have uh, an Italian nation. But, um, yeah, it's a subject for another podcast somewhere, I think. 
So whichever party promises better fresh pasta has definitely got a shoe in at the next election. You know, I don't even know if I've ever had fresh pasta. James, you're missing out. I mean, there used to be a fresh pasta shop in East Dulwich, but it didn't last, uh, not surprisingly. There wasn't quite enough uh, market. I, I, maybe I have. I wouldn't know. Maybe, I don't know. Is it that much better than the stuff out of the packet? I See, again, these are the Brexit deal promises that no one's putting forward <laughs> and it would just fix so many things, so many things. Um, thanks tons for your time today, James. Uh, just uh, one thing that I ask all the guests on this show um, is that apart from yourself, who obviously listeners need to go and follow and listen to your podcast, um, who else do you recommend? Who, who do you enjoy following or, or reading or who's who's reasonably sensible <laughs> and, and and maybe has decent predictions? Who should we go to? Um, I tell you, one person, I mean, there are lots of people out there, that's the thing. But I tell you one who I always come back to and who is actually guesting on uh, Podcast Live on Saturday at uh, the Friends Meeting House in Euston, where you get it. Oh, this is good. I didn't even know I was this slick. You get it in are doing their live podcast uh, at Podcast Live on Saturday. Uh, and we've got um, Jonathan Fall, who is uh, a former uh, UK civil servant in Brussels. But we've got Peter Foster of The Telegraph. He is he's at PMD Foster. Um, he's a, a Europe correspondent. Uh, he's based in London. I always assumed he was based in Brussels, but it turned out he just sits at his desk in London. Um, but he's very wide. He does massive threads about stuff, um, but they're really logical. I mean, he knows what's going on inside the EU. He knows what's happening here. Um, and you sort of go, oh, he's from the Telegraph. But I don't know how he keeps his job at the Telegraph. Um, he uh, just offers balanced views on um you know what's going on and and i say stuff like how can the eu and the uk positions possibly match up and generally the answer is they don't i mean he understands uh the irish border issue um he's, he's just a really sensible straight down the line sort of person and exactly what we need in these times so i'd certainly go and suggest reading him particularly his threads on twitter Thanks so much to James for that chat. And you can find him at Political Yeti on Twitter or on his website, james-miller, that's ar.com. James hosts the UK Interchanging Europe podcast. He writes articles for various publications, including recently the Press and Journal. James's recommendations will all be on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co website soon. And James also, on top of all that, runs the workingdads.co.uk website, which is for um, dads who work. It sort of says it on the tin, like the Ron Seal of websites. Um, And I occasionally blog on that site, and my newest one will go up later this week, so do check that out. I've currently got guests up to my ears, which is fairly awkward as I have to sort of unstack them in order to speak to them. And they really aren't all that happy about being stored till I'm ready and constantly next to my ears. But hey, they agreed to chat. So that's what they get. What I mean is I've got the next few weeks sorted, but then after that is back to chasing interviewees. Um, Thanks tons to those of you who've sent in suggestions recently, but I am always hungry for more like a knowledge galactus. And the more you send in, the higher the chance I'll actually get someone booked. Um, so drop me a line on the website contact page, the at Parpol Road Twitter account, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or by emailing me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com with the subject line humbug, so I know you're taking it seriously. <laughs> That's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for using your precious life minutes absorbing this show into your head holes. And if you do enjoy it, then why not donate to the Kofi or Patreon, review it on one of the podcast reviewy type places, and maybe spend an afternoon whispering, subscribe to Parpol Bro in the ears of your loved one or placid colleague and coax them into giving this show an audio world. Thanks to Acast, my brother and last skeptic for the bleep bloop sounds, and to Cat Day for the linear liner notes for the website. This will be back next week when it's discovered that Boris Johnson has been drowning kittens in bags every Wednesday for 36 years, but he swears it's everyone else's fault for liking kittens too much, and he is actually the ideal example of a true animal lover, as if he'd kept the kittens alive, they'd have to live under his government, which would be much worse. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Sajid Javid's new Labour tribute band made up of Conservatives called The Stony Roses, with such great hits as Green New Deal but not really very green and full of old deals, The Universal Credit Scrap where they keep Universal Credit but just send its recipients bits of old food instead of money, and the classic Four and a Half Day Week which is where businesses can't afford to stay open fully anymore so everyone suffers. Check out the Stony Roses tribute manifesto, I can't believe it's not Labour, out now.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.